Welcome to episode three of Sound Learnings, a podcast about education in audio, music technology, and music production, sponsored by Routledge. My name is Tim Canfer, and as ever, I am joined by Russ Hepworth Sawyer and Corolla Bohm. I'm recording this intro in late October, in fact, the day before Halloween. This episode was recorded in early July of this year and is a chat with Mike Exarchos. Mike is a senior lecturer at the University of West London and an award-winning rapper and recording artist, better known as Stereo Mike. We discuss a wide range of issues affecting HE and working as a creative practitioner. We cover the pitfalls of signing to a major label, being an academic and a musical artist, what Mike calls the hybrid academic. I do like that term. Obviously, we're all hybrids of some kind, but this one really gives a focus to that dynamic. We talk about content creation, equity issues, and you may notice some audio issues with Mike's signal. Rather tragically, he'd set up a 414 and a tube pre, but his audio interface failed. Episodes two and three, and also four, unfortunately, we do suffer a little bit on the guest audio front, but it picks up significantly from there, and I can assure you that the content is still just as good. We start the episode by me very clumsily introducing some highlights of Mike's musical career. We're not quite the well-oiled media machine yet, but we're getting there. I hope you'll agree. So enjoy episode three of Sound Learnings, a chat with Stereo Mike. Thank you for joining us, Mike. It's a real pleasure. Great to meet you all. You were MTV EMA award winner in 2008. That's correct, yeah. You were seventh in the Eurovision 2011, is that right? That is true as well. (laughs) (laughs) At that time, were you thinking about teaching? Were you teaching? Was that a part of your practice? Or were you a full-time musician? I have always done both in parallel, just in different percentages. So at the time of the, shall we say, the music success or the music profile, I was part-time teaching at the University of Westminster. It was a role that started as visiting lecturer, became 0.5, became 0.8. And I was managing the business of the two careers with very, very little sleep. (laughs) To the point where a lot of people in Greece thought I was actually living there during the time of those records. Wow. And they thought I moved to the UK recently for academic purposes. Well, the truth has been, I've been here for about 20 years and did those records remotely. Mm. That's the story behind that. That's interesting. In a way, it's been remote working for me for a long time on the music industry side of things. And now it's been reversed. Now the academia side became remote. It was early days for the record labels to be, especially in smaller countries, to be very active online. So I did end up having to learn how to promo, do the graphic design, run a website, create a website, run the social media, all the sort of 360 stuff that a record label would like to do now. And there was a point where, you know, I had double the amount of people on my Facebook page than EMI Greece did. <laughs> so that was actually really useful learning. And it is something I've brought to the teaching in music education, because I think we sometimes are very intrinsic about audio and music. Mm. And we do less about the 360 economy that's built around music, which tends to be the stuff that creates profiles and money for people. We've spoken about this before, Mike. One of the things that would be interesting to discuss is how do you see the relationship, certainly within UK higher education, between how industry views the educator and how the educator views industry? How do you see those relationships connecting? 
Well, I think it's changed drastically and dramatically over the almost 20 years I've been involved with education from a teaching perspective. Initially, I was in a department run by a practitioner, it was Alan Fisher of Camperevolter fame, who mixed people like Take That and Bjork. Um, and he ran a department very much with his heart dedicated to a real industry experience for the students, all the way from the studios to also who he was hiring. And there was a healthy mix of researcher academics and more practitioner academics. It was also a time where I think having a record, a successful record out, mattered as much as a PhD. That changed mm. over the 20 years. I think we became a lot more metric obsessed. Mm. And I understand that side. I think there was a need for more accountability in education. Mm. But I do think that with since the fees, since the whole face of education became much more customer service based, the metrics ended up mattering a bit more than the knowledge. Mm. Now, both sides of that knowledge are very important. You know, the research and the practitioner side. I've always believed in both very much, but I think that that balance has changed dramatically over the last 20 years, where your industry experience is very much welcomed, but it's hopefully something you did in the past and it's coming in and it's being helpful rather than something that current academic priorities allow space for. Yeah, that's interesting. It seems a very short-term plan, though. Any technology subject quickly becomes obsolete, doesn't it? I completely agree. And I think that one of the reasons I still feel I am relevant to my students is because I effectively don't sleep and make records during the night. <laughs> you know, that's a slight exaggeration, but not really, because for me to continue being an artist, I do work through the night. I do the other career on top of a full-time academic one, yeah. rather than find space for it within the academic one. And my students appreciate that, but as I'm aging, you know, as I'm hitting 42 uh, in, in three days, <laughs> I find that I'm still trying to act like a 25 rapper education uh, person. And that is not sustainable in the long run. Yeah. Writing articles, doing PhDs, writing books, mm. doing research and making records. Even though to me, that is all the same story. That has always been my story. It feels very congruent, mm. but there is a time management issue, mm. which I'm increasingly finding academia not supporting, so much so that I find really good colleagues of mine who are in the same boat actually leaving academia yeah. to pursue the other career more fully because academia hasn't been given them the space. And that's extremely sad because we are actually losing the best people. Absolutely. The yeah. ones who are able to bring current knowledge yeah. into all academia, but specifically music tech as well. And, you know, I am having very similar thoughts at the moment because I am trying to create a balance and I love teaching and I love students, mm. but I think the scenario is becoming less and less sustainable for people who do want to do both or all three sides of it at the same time. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that, but I just want to interject there. Firstly, happy birthday um, when it comes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I do think that there is this reality, this whole thing about people potentially leaving education because of wanting to keep other things that are valuable to them and the students and there seems to be and carol is going to be the best person to throw in the questions there after this from a management perspective surely it's important to keep the students on board with that narrative yeah. of what a lecturer like yourself can offer compared to oh someone who's just not done anything carol over to you yeah just continuing on that thread i think you know the whole sector is challenged in terms of the 
time it takes to administer higher education. So, you know, I think we all have experienced that. We enjoy research. We enjoy the teaching side of things. It's actually the administration which has increased unsustainably. Um, and, you know, and there are statistics behind it. If you compare, I don't know about Greek universities, but certainly German universities, they have something like 20, 30 percent professional staff and 70 percent uh, academic staff. In the UK, it's about 50, 50. So we have a larger administrative burden, mm. but that's also created by individual academics. So I completely agree. It's a bit of a shift towards what I guess in the 20th century we call professionalization, but with it comes actually the inability to work as a team, to have different kinds of functionalities in a team and the ability to really do what you want rather than to evidence constantly what exactly. you're doing. But my question was actually something else because you mentioned how beneficial it is. There's this term the permeable university. We're becoming very good as university, especially in the new university sector, to become more permeable, that there is interaction between industry and academia. And you've mentioned how you can bring your industry expertise to benefit our young talent that is going to be the future of our sector. Also, the other way around, do you get influenced by your PhD in terms of your industry practice or does your teaching influence positively or negatively your industry practice or your creative practice? Yeah, I think there's a few things to unpack. I think that's really to the point. I agree with a lot of what you said. On the earlier point, I think that there was a time where we were still running a bit of an art school metaphor in audio schools, music technology, music education, which I am very keen of because it's allowed that teamwork and that creativity and that sort of space for failure. And I mean yeah. that in a very positive way. I think creativity is multiple failures until you release something and you sign something off as good enough. You know, when does a mix get abandoned, that sort of mm. story. You are right in talking about the professionalization of the sector. And I think there are a lot of positives there. You know, I don't want to come across as somebody who's lamenting on the old days at all. I think it created accountability. I think it created professional attitudes. But we need to be careful not to throw the baby with the bathwater because yeah. there were aspects of the warmer team spirit mm. in the art school metaphor that allowed teaching in the sense of the reasons why I came into education mm. in the first place. Mm. Um, sharing practice, having the time to sit in a studio with students and dissect things and not only worry about the NSS. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that these two things are conflicting, mm. but I think the administrative burden that this also created in parallel, but also the, I guess, the lack of acceptance that if you're going to be a professional entity, you need to hire the workforce that goes with it. I'm sure there is a model that works, where the academic can still be an artist academic, a creative mm. practitioner, because what is going to happen is, you see, these are still early times. If I take my 20-year career so far in academia, the last five to 10 years have definitely stopped me from the frequency and the speed of releases I was doing before. Yeah. And I wonder what's going to happen in another 10 years and whether this link to industry will be more about bringing already successful professionals in for those master classes, for those, you know, promo shots. I don't want to sound too cynical with this, but yeah. unless about having great talent that you're not allowing the chance to keep growing. Mm -hmm. So if I find myself stopping to grow, I will probably leave or do something mm -hmm. else. Yeah. Or I will stop being a creative practitioner in parallel. Yeah. And then it will be about bringing 
professionals from outside and just sort of circulating doing that circle. This is the reality. I mean, this is something I faced. I worked at an institution. It was my first ever full-time job and it was many years ago now. I remember at the time coming in from working part-time in industry, coming into this particular place, being asked by a student after I'd been there maybe three years, teaching with another guy who was part-time, who's engineering, mm. and being asked, so Russ, what have you been doing lately? I've been teaching your course. And literally it was a measurement between me and this other colleague who, brilliant guy, but was still being, what's the word, measured against how professional we are but if we're not given the time to be able to do it i remain part-time in education so i have got the time to do it how long that's feasible in the real world i don't know it's difficult isn't it Mm. i agree but carola you brought out another point that's the sort of positive side of how the synthesis might work and whether the research is affecting my practice absolutely i've been an ambassador for people doing creative or practice-based phds because I actually dropped my record label to do my fourth album as a PhD. Right. And, you know, a major label contract, I decided to stop it after my initial independent album. I had a three-album deal. I stopped at two albums because I wanted to take the time to do this third one. Mm. As I guess somebody who, I suppose I could say I'm satisfied that I had some success with my work commercially. And I actually wanted to take the hip-hop scholar thing back into the cave if you allow me that metaphor i sort of wanted to do it slow i wanted to think about it i didn't want to do it in the sort of speeds of a commercial release Mm. partly because i wanted to find a way of working around the commercial creative financial limitations of copyright licensing yeah and i wanted to create a hip-hop album where i've made all the samples myself so that isn't an issue but i'm still getting a sample based aesthetic out of that. That sounds kind of simple on the surface, and there are other really big famous practitioners like De La Soul and Frank Dukes doing yeah. exactly that. But I wanted to research it, analyze it, understand mm-hmm. it, understand why doesn't a recording sound like a sample? Mm-hmm. What are the aesthetic nuances of what gives this music a sample based aesthetic? And for that, I needed to slow down going to yeah. the cave, the studio cave, and research this carefully and ask myself very difficult questions as an artist and as a researcher. I don't think those two things are different in my head. Yeah. But I need to do it in a way that I was answering commercial problems that I faced in my major label contracts. Yeah. One of them being that I find myself with EMI as an independent artist, bringing in a pre-production that was quite heavily based on samples and thinking now that I'm with a major label, I got it, right? We're going <laughs> to gonna license everything and, and release the stuff that features soul and funk and blues records, we think. Of course, the answer was something that Wayne Marshall has written in a wonderful article about the death of the real in sample-based hip-hop. Yeah, yeah. I found out that actually I was in the worst possible majority of artists. Uh, I was not in the minority of underground beat makers, producers who don't really care about the mainstream radar. And I was not in the top 1% of Kanye West who can license anything. I was with a major profile in a small country, Mm. you know, national original success. And this is where you have all the problems. Wayne Marshall has identified that as Mm. the problem of practicing this art form for the majority of producers. And there I was thinking, oh, I gotta rewrite this whole album because a major label contract means less than being independent in this freedom. So this is this led to a PhD, this problem. This was actually a real problem. 
isn't that such a fabulous example? Because on the one hand, that's where practice as research works really well, because you've got the critical and conceptual inquiry, which pushes the practice forward. And then from the practice, you get more critical and conceptual insights that might influence the industry and influence understanding and help others to position themselves. So I think that's a brilliant example where practice as research PhDs can provide so much and where universities have a role to play to support these kinds of research projects. I completely agree. And, you know, it led to signing with Digital Minds, which is an international mm. digital content label, yeah. because they were more excited about the making of than even the album. Right. And I created an online blog called uh, Hip Hop Time Machine, where I'm just sharing my trips to America, to the old studios, to Sam Phillips's old studio, to the Chess Brothers old studio, finding Willie Dixon's grandson and talking to him for four hours because he was so excited about the project. Cool. And then doing my little experiments, echo chambers in the loo, like the chess <laughs> brothers were doing. But all of that stuff that's me making the album has become teaching material. Mm. In fact, my university gave me the title of online champion because they liked my online delivery, which was actually heavily using all my DIY experiments from this very project. So, Carola, what you're saying is completely true. The universities get the benefit of this projects or lives that are embedded research and industry. But the question remains, I have been doing this in my own yeah. time, in my not free time, my night time, you know. Yeah. Yes, quite. And we need to find ways to support people who do, you know, I'm surrounded mm -hmm. by colleagues doing the same. Their life is this one enthusiastic dedication to their field. And yep. they do it through scholarly and through practical means. To them, it's the same. Mm. But we need the space to do that. Some of my best colleagues have gone part-time. So the university yeah. has lost 50% of them yep. because they couldn't be artists and academics at the same time right now in 2019, 2020. So yeah. with all that positivity, I think that the middle management and higher management in the universities needs to think about what Tim said earlier. What happens in five years? Mm. Yeah. Let's not look at the current metrics. What happens in five or ten years? Will we lose this hybrid mm. academic that we we got in yeah. 10, 15 years ago as visiting lecturers initially? Mm. And I think the challenge is actually quite larger than that, because I think somehow Britain has managed quite well to make the entrepreneurial university a thing. We see European universities sometimes struggle slightly more with that, especially with yeah. music and music technology and music production playing quite a large role in the higher education sector in Britain. But actually what's happening on the larger scale, and I think this is something to do with our elitism, with our class divides, that there is still the separation between I guess what Labour would call the worker. As a German, I kind of think I don't understand what class means. I don't understand yeah. what, you know, the working class means. You know, as a German, I never had to deal with these kinds of concepts. And I don't know if that's the same for Greece. But what we're actually seeing here in the UK is that there is a separation between the very, very well-off at the top, and that includes artists, and the general much less well-off and highly working individuals and with that universities have also lost a lot of funding so you work the working community much more than you used to yeah. and i think that's something that we need to turn around but it's not just in the higher education sector it's in every single sector that we have this divide between the ultra 
rich and now everyone else who's just working so much more than ever before. And I think there are some statistics which have compared the average working hours of the average worker in Britain to Victorian times, to early industrial, the first half of the industrial age where workers were exploited. Now, that might be a bit too lefty, but there is some truth in that if we had spread the wealth much more than everyone is able to have a bit more time We're supposed to have the future of work. We're supposed to have yeah. much more automation. So where's the benefit at the moment? We all in all of the sector see actually we're working longer hours rather than less. So what is happening there? Also, it seems to reflect that in the industry as well. There seems to be a particular demographic now that you can only really manage to do it if you're funded by the bank of mum and dad, mm. which you see the amount of musicians now in popular music there's so much more from what you would normally call upper class i think enemy did a piece on the number of people who've come from public school it's rocketed whereas it used to be in like the one percents now it's significantly more and it's a shame because we're, we're seeing that and i suppose that reflects the general demographic of sociocultural boundaries of course race and gender the whole yeah. thing i'm really glad you brought up the equity and democracy arguments today, both of you, Roland Tim. I think it's impossible to be a hip-hop artist and not come from a place of DIY. Absolutely. I suppose doing it for some social reason. Obviously, I'm talking about the real hip-hop, not necessarily the show of hip-hop. Yeah. But I think that's fundamental to my psyche as a, as a musician, whether it's punk or hip-hop, the DIY aspect of making something out of nothing relates to peoples who had to make that happen to express themselves. Mm. Yeah. I've been quite lucky that I've worked in a couple of universities that have had a statistic of unusual backgrounds and demographics to what is the norm. And that's been a yeah. real pleasure. You know, as a foreigner coming to the UK, getting my education, and then turning around in my class on you know, MA in the early 2000s and having a class of 30 people all the way from India to America, to Africa, blending their sounds, blending their instruments, blending their mentality, blending the way they listen. I think it's very nuanced and deep, the way people hear bass, the way people hear top. So it's actually a whole sonic yeah. perspective of how we understand stuff. It's affected, let alone the students, it's affected me hugely over the years. It's taught me a lot. You know, I've actually been learning so much more by having vibrant, enthusiastic international students in my classes from every social background. I think this is extremely important. As a hip-hop musician and hip-hop educator, I think this is what has made my educational context really exciting, mm. really amazing. Yeah, I want to see it continue. I was a little bit surprised about a class system myself coming from somewhere else. Right. Partly coming from a place with no economy. I have actually <laughs> joked to my parents recently, My dad is Greek, my mom is Croatian. Those are two of the worst economies in Europe, or the were for a minute. And then I came to the UK, and I'm seeing this country doing quite badly with Brexit and in education <laughs> and the rest. And I, there was a point where I said, am I cursed? <laughs> um, <laughs> joking aside, I think that after you lived for a few decades, you're starting to see patterns, and you're sort of also seeing dangerous patterns. And I'm quite aware that I... Yeah. One of my countries had this great idea because there once used to be an empire, you know, Greece being a place of great mythology and ancient yeah. past. I think it's certainly affected. This new Greece is a very, very new place. I went through two world wars, mm. a civil war, 
uh, dictatorship. It's actually about, you know, only slightly older than me in terms of a new country. But in the people's minds, it's a very old, big, ancient country. Mm. That needs a reckoning. And I'm seeing exactly the same in the UK as a more recent empire. Absolutely. And I think that is very much related to the class system that uh, Carolyn mentioned. And that has always had a more obvious divide between ex-polytechnics and proper universities. But now within those, we are, I think, seeing maybe some of that divide between management and the workers. So, you know, at at 42, approaching the end of my PhD, having taught from my heart for two decades, I would be thinking that I would have some space rather than work harder than ever. That's fine, working hard, but I think it needs to be on a place where we have staff care and we allow staff to develop rather than to take their enthusiasm somewhere else, which unfortunately a lot of us are considering. Yeah. You speak, Mike, about the work you're putting in. One of the things I'm aware of is at University of West London, where you're based, you and your colleagues have been putting in an inordinate amount of efforts come the lockdown to do stuff. Could you maybe sort of share what kind of efforts you guys have gone to to make yourselves into TV stars? I think that's a lovely compliment. I'll give you one example, which I think is probably one of many. It resonates with some of my colleagues. I was teaching an advanced mixing techniques module at level six when the lockdown just hit us halfway through it. And I was going from a sort of inside the box mixing practice to a hybrid one. And this is the moment we were going to gloriously go out of the box and use hardware and hybridize. Not that we haven't been doing it for three years, but this was a module where this was celebrated. Mm -hmm. I was really trying to show students what is that extra five or 10% you get from the other gear, especially as every generation that joins us now tends to be more inside the box. And that's absolutely fine. I think incredible records are being made on the laptop, some of which I'm a huge fan of. But I was just trying to show students in the Grand Prix, people spend the 85% of the budget on the 1% of the speeds. And I think there's a similar metaphor in Sonics. Mm. We spend the incredible amount of tools and money for that extra 1% to 5% of Sonic difference. Mm. Sometimes all you have to do, because we have to be realistic that the students may not have access to SSLs and Neves after they leave for a moment, but sometimes just turning the ears on to the difference is enough. Of course. And then people can go back to emulation and do incredible things. Mm-hmm. So this lockdown caught me on that moment in the module. I really had to think very, very, very hard. How do we do hybridity? How do we do it remotely? Mm. Yeah. How do we teach it in a meaningful way? And this is the moment where I actually used up all my DIY resources. I used up what I do, (laughs) what I do at home. Um, (laughs) We looked into creating IRs out of amps, not out of reverbs, out of Mm -hmm. stomp boxes, sharing them. Mm -hmm. We use stomp boxes as processors. Sometimes you forget how great a little bass compressor can be on the drums or a little bit of a distortion mm. pedal instead of your very expensive parallel decapitators, other <laughs> things that have a bit of crunch to their compression, like distressors. I would take a Bluetooth speaker into a loop <laughs> with a mic and turn it into an echo chamber, but also importantly, <laughs> doing a systematic analysis of what is out there. We found out in, uh, alongside mm. my, my good colleague, uh, Dr. Dan Pratt, who teaches with me and came from Australia to teach with us. Uh, we looked at every option in the market, from the UADs to the plug-in alliance tolerance modeling ideas to the Harrison mix buses. Mm. And we just did a, you know, 
as you do as a research, look at what are the options, which ones are cheap, which ones are free, which ones are more democratic. And thankfully, a lot of the plugin manufacturers were giving extended demos for 90 days, for 60 days, for 30 days. And we would bring those links to the students. So this week, let me show you Luna. This week, let's use Plugin Alliance stuff. Mm, mm. This week, let me show you the same mix that I did on Harrison and did in Luna and did with Pro Tools Heat. And actually, mm, mm. the students fed back to say this one-hour videos we were creating in a flipped classroom paradigm were some of the best things they had in the three years, partly because mm. we were forced to communicate in a compact way everything we know. <laughs> I won't lie, one hour video took me 16 hours of production. Yeah. Partly because I'm not a YouTuber. I have a newfound respect for what some of these yeah. <laughs> young artists and speakers do online. I would use my phone and iPad and GoPro camera angles just to shoot some equipment and some process. Yeah. I found ways to record the audio better. I found ways to decide what needed to be. I needed to find ways where things that mattered in terms of sonic quality, I was pre-producing. So then the webinars would become, whether they were on Zoom or Blackboard or Microsoft Teams, those were more for discussion and we found ways to produce the material beforehand. To summarize it all, in this module I teach called Creative Collaboration Project, which is about innovation and group flow in collaboration, mm. every year we do a session on disaster research. Yeah. And we look at earthquakes and fires and how people improvise beautifully when they have to. Huh. And how that improvisation tends to be always grounds up and how big military or health systems tend to fail initially. Yeah. And the grounds up innovation tends to find the solutions and eventually the larger more inflexible systems catch up. Mm. If you think about the army in the Italian earthquakes or volcanoes, if you think about Katrina, yeah. if you think about anything <laughs> big and organized and trained, they tend to not react very well to the panic. Look at education. The management systems across various unis stood back for a moment and trying to think of systems while we just mm. had to teach next week. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what we did. We just, we didn't think we were innovating. We were putting whole weekends, 16 hours of editing and recording to create a one hour video. No wonder the students loved it. But the mm. question now is, say my uni really liked that and named me online champion. Oh yeah, quite. But then when I started discussing with them what it takes and how some of the stuff they see that's really fancy online yeah. has two video operators, an audio editor, they do yeah. five hours of editing for a few minutes. Imagine a single person with a lesson plan doing that. Exactly. And how long that takes. So how do we go ahead? Yeah, the thing is, Mike, they have a team. If you look at Graham Cochran, for example, one of the most famous course designers for music techie type stuff, he has a video editor. He has a guy answering emails. He has people mm. doing this stuff. And of course, he can spend a day just filming stuff yeah. just because he wants to. We can't. Something that gets lost is you have the connection with those students. They're not just watching a professional do something really well. They're watching their tutor, yeah. who is also a professional and who they trust. I think that's really important because one of my big worries is that management will think, well, hang on, we can't possibly afford to pay all of our staff to produce all of their own stuff. What we'll do is we'll pay one person to produce all of it, and then all of our students can just do all of that flipped learning, but there'll be no connection. Mm. I think part of the teaching will be lost in that process if that happens. I agree. I just finished, uh, I just got my validation for a new program I wrote for the university called Recording, Mixing and Production, ah. which is my dream course. I wanted to be on as a kid. 
And I'm very happy to have written, after really a couple of decades in academia, my dream course. I'm very, very, very excited about it. Cool. But of course, it's during lockdown. Mm-hmm. and finishing off the validation. And yeah. it's about also thinking, how do we deliver in a more blended way? I don't really want to do that. I want to be in the studio. Yeah, I do like blended in the sense that we also get into the studio. But the question that came up that's very relevant to what Tim just said is, these will be now new students, right? Yeah, Those new students seeing me on camera, that's a very different experience Mm-hmm. To my level sixes, who for three years we've worked together, having to do a semester of blended delivery and almost getting the best sort of concrete summary of everything I know in those videos. That's very, very different. Mm. Like you said, the learn to trust me, the know my keywords. Mm. I can say in the video, remember all those times we spent when we were doing phase and chasing phase and yeah. here's what the EQ just did and ruined the phase. Uh, let's have a look at that. This is linking up to, if not years, at least months of human connection, previous teaching. Mm. It's it's a bank of knowledge with a personal touch. And how do we deliver that to new students? That's very, very different Mm. because there have been providers that have done it completely online and they're very good at that. Mm. And the question then becomes, how blended do we go and what industry are we in? We in audio and music tech, we know sound travels in space. We know we capture sound in space. Sometimes we synthesize and do it DI and electronically, and that's beautiful as well. But even then, you monitor that sound, hopefully, on speakers in a room, and you understand space within space, so that when eventually it hits a great mastering engineer like Russ, it doesn't have to re-engineer the mix from scratch. No. I think that's all extremely important, that our art form is a form of sonic architecture, you know, and it works mm. in space, even if it's extremely electronic, even if it's completely de mm. Yeah. These are the sort of arguments that are actually hard to explain to people who don't do the nuanced aspects of this. Definitely. And this is where the trust needs to be with the specialist when we say there is no point teaching a recording module after a certain point yeah. <laughs> online. Mm. I need to have somebody mm. like Pip, who's done decades yeah. of records who knows microphones, breathes microphones, instinctually hears resonances in microphones. I want this person who has decades of industry experience across different styles to be there with my level fours and mm-hmm. go, be the guru. Be the guru that he is with a microphone in a room, searching for that <laughs> space. Yeah, He's referring to Pip Williams there. I am, I am. Because, you know, this is the beauty of education. You will find somebody younger than me coming in with a... Max Ableton glitch skills, yeah. me in the middle, kind of doing old school and new school at the same time, and somebody like Pete mm-hmm. doing more of the old school. It's great that we have accumulated this talent, and now we need to keep it because then the students get seven or eight decades of yeah. audio knowledge from vintage mics, cutting edge chopping. And of course, that points towards something which we've just talked about 10 minutes ago, this notion of the permeable university that we're moving towards and we need to push that faster in that, that we make these partnerships, that university industry partnerships really benefit the young talent coming up. So it's not about the academic Mm -hmm. alone, knowing the knowledge and transferring it to their learners. It's actually about facilitating an environment where also industry comes in where new ideas come in, where academia comes in, and then facilitating that learning in that environment. Yeah, I completely agree. We recently brought Mark Spike Stent to do mm-hmm. a masterclass yeah. because he was our honorary PhD. 
I did the speech for him. It was actually extremely humbling to be introducing him in a graduation of students. He was humbled equally about the academic qualification. Hmm. He didn't want this award to be just an honorary thing. He wanted to come back and do a master class in his hmm. insanely busy schedule, and he kept pushing us for it. Now, his connection with us is that Paul Bosch, one of our lecturers, was his assistant back in the day, so it's a very warm connection, and that goes back to show how for a lot of us, those links are not something we have to synthesize. They have always been there. Yeah. yeah. This model of the university is still feeding off digesting a previous model. It would be dangerous to assume it's all working. Mm. We're seeing the positive hangover of a very art school connected practitioner education system. Yeah. yeah so yeah. now we need some very active moves to yeah. keep that happening. There's other reasons for that as well. At the same time, the university is losing its allure to students yeah. who just want to do. It's a very capitalistic moment in the industries. Mm. I think it's a peak of neoliberalism. And that has affected people's philosophies. Yeah. And they just want to succeed in their industry. I didn't enter uni even 25 years ago, wanted to be an academic. I wanted mm. to be in the studios and learn how to make incredible punk, hip-hop, metal, funk. Yeah. The lecturers that I loved were the same ones I would go and see in a gig. Yeah. Like Barkley, who Russ knows, he inspired me to be an academic because I saw him at a gig playing the Hammond organ like a god that same evening. Barkley Mackay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, first, that same evening after a class. Yeah. So that's my role model academic. And hopefully I'm a similar kind. He's a great producer too. Amazing, amazing. And, you know, he taught me studio crafts. And I think he taught me something more than that, that this is the sort of hybrid academic I like. Mm. And I am one of them. I actually met him at the NPEC a few years ago with short hair, and I didn't recognize him at first. And I was like, you are Barclay. You are the reason I'm here. You know, uh-huh. this is how important this stuff is. Yeah. So the people who turned me on to academia were actually great practitioners. And the students who are coming in to go back to the argument of employment and employability, they don't come in because of the academic allure. They come because of the industry links and because the university says we have a great employment record mm. and we have great practitioners on board. If you fast forward five to 10 years, I think you may find that the academicness of the institution, once we go through another generation, at the moment, I think it's only interesting to parents, not to kids. Kids come yeah. to mm-hmm. uni to learn the skills. The parents are sort of making a compromise going, okay, you're going to do what you love and get a degree. I'm sort of happy <laughs> with that. That's what happened to me. Me too. So what happens in five, 10 years if we all leave? Are they just coming to my online tutorial classes? Are they coming to my studio? Is the education becoming more one of private providers or a new model mm. where teams of great people just create amazing stuff? Mm. Mm. I hope not because I think there's value. Mm to the academic institution, but the academic institution needs to understand what's happening. They do. The guy I was mentioning in my diatribe earlier was indeed Barclay, by the way, when we talked together. There you there go. There you go. There's one last question. And I don't mean to put you on the spot, Mike. However, <laughs> we wanted to get your view on the necessity to have a PhD to teach music production. Do you think it's necessary? Well, my quick answer would be no, because I've taught without it for a very, very long time. I don't think it's, you know, a duality question. It's not an either or. If you want everybody to have a PhD to even be a lecturer, not even a senior lecturer or post-leader or anything like that, or researcher, that is definitely something the 
the institutions have now put as a benchmark. Yep. So I wonder what it will do to the future generations of teacher practitioners, because we really need them. And maybe mm. at some point they get a PhD. For me, the second part of the answer would be that my PhD has definitely benefited my teaching. So huge value there. Yeah. And it's actually benefited my craft and my art as well. So I think it's a wonderful thing. Making it an absolute benchmark on necessity, mm. I think it devalues it because eventually everybody will have a DR in front of their name. But it also, I think, stops people from something that I very consciously decided to do after my master's. After my master's, I started a PhD. It was in electroacoustic music. Mm. It was at Middlesex. I loved it. I loved the sonic arts aspects of sound design. But I got my big break with my hip-hop career in parallel. Mm. I had an independent record. It went big with a couple of singles that brought me to the VMA Awards in, in Greece. And that brought me to a point where I could either produce my major record album, big, big time, or do the PhD. There was a point where the two were not at all compatible. So being 22, 23, 24 at the time, that's the period it took, working as a chief engineer in a small hackney studio, teaching as a visiting lecturer, trying to do a PhD and suddenly having a career break, hmm. I thought quite consciously about the ageism of the music industry. Mm. Yeah. I also ended up fronting my album by accident. I was never going to be the MC on my own productions. I think that played part of that conscious decision. Huh. And I thought to myself, you don't often get the chance at mm. 24, 25 to do this. Yeah. I will always get a chance to do a PhD later when I'm more embedded in academia. Now, that is a decision mm. a young academic probably would make differently because they would know their academic career is a no-go unless they get that PhD. And now what we're getting is 25 years old mm. olds with mm. PhD who have lost the chance to do practitioner yeah. work and they become lifelong academics. Mm. So the hybrid academic I am is very much based on a decision to follow industry and not academia for a moment <laughs> when it was more congruent to my age. And then now I can write a PhD about HIPPO because I have a little bit of kudos as a practitioner. And I can talk about records and, and mixing mm. records and sampling and legal issues. In fact, my PhD was born out of an industry conundrum, huh. as I said. That's my worry about making it an absolute. It's mm. definitely beneficial, but maybe we can be a bit more organic about it. Thank you. Yeah, and I think it is a typical characteristic of British higher education that you do your undergraduate degree, you do your MA, and you go straight into a PhD. Whereas again, on the continent, there's quite often two, three, five, ten years in between finishing your undergraduate degree and then starting a PhD. And of course, then you actually know what you need. And then you can really drive that innovation into you know your practice. Yeah. Absolutely. The whole adult learning and lifelong learning, there's lots of lip service paid to it. But as a society, we're just, we're not encouraging it. No. We're not. You know, education, then work. That's it. Yeah. Not only are we not valuing it, we've actually put in policies that are detrimental to lifelong learning whilst maintaining that it's really important. Absolutely. Since the late end of the last century, there's been a political change a shift certainly since 2010 away from widening participation i'd argue and also lifelong learning which hasn't helped what's interesting to hear from mike is the mix of people and cultures he's had on his course one thing i've noticed over the years certainly in that period because i started teaching in the mid 90s i had mature students i was teaching in my early 20s they were twice my age on degrees and that carried on but it suddenly stopped around i don't know i couldn't give you a date but it suddenly stopped overnight and we started to get right. school leavers 
straight to university. Yeah. And I think that rich, complex background is missing. So yes, there's something exactly. to be talked about in a future podcast, I would say. I would agree with Caroline saying that the new PhD I started was completely different. And it was because of industry mm. experience, because it was born as a professional problem. So I didn't go back to an electroacoustic one. In fact, as much as I love electroacoustic music, I also found that it represents a more academic, elitist yeah. way of making sounds. While my truth, my, my life story was about DIY mm. sounds. <laughs> now, of course, they connect and not separate. But there was a philosophical difference to what my new PhD yeah. is and why it's much more relevant to my mm. students as well. So I would concur with that. And yeah. I think we still get more mature students on MAs. And I personally still get them. But I agree with Russ that these are quite passionate people who are saying, I'm going to be insane for a moment and go against what is sensible. Yeah. Rather than actually saying it is very sensible at some point in your life to come in yeah. and do this. My mom recently, uh, near her retirement, did a psychology degree in an open university style where it was something she worked in the tourist industry for 42 years and she always dealt with clients and she felt she was always sitting in the psychology chair and one day she did it. Huh, that's great. In her 60s. It's incredible, <laughs> you know. We need to support that. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That, and lifelong learning as a mm. philosophy. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. We're coming up to the end of our time I want to say massive thank you. Mm. A quick reflection. Wouldn't it be great to see that diversity of students filtering through, not just in our classes, but also to places of power? That's one thing I would love to see. Absolutely. I just want to really thank you. I concur with Tim. I think we need to turn around in our meetings and see the same blend we see in our students. We need our content to contain that. As a black student who did EDM told me last year, finally, Mike, I'm hearing something other than Andy Wallace in mixing. <laughs> and it sounded a little bit sort of funny and harmless, mm. but then I thought, wait a minute, mm. the sort of disruptors that we are now teaching are 20, 30 years old and white guys like yeah. me, we definitely need to change that. And not only because we have a BLM moment in the news, exactly. that is real, that is systemic, that is a problem, it needs to change. Finally, I just want to really thank you because you don't get to air your concerns and frustrations and also hopes <laughs> follow academics very often and have it recorded. Don't worry it happens in, you know, yeah, meetings or outside of it. So um, thank you very much for this opportunity. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. A pleasure. Cheers, man. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening to episode three of Sound Learnings. Produced by Tim Kanfer, Russ Hipworth-Sawyer, and Corolla Bohm. Editing, mixing, and music composition is by me, Tim Kanfer. Russ Hipworth-Sawyer does the mastering, and Corolla Bohm does the show notes and social media. Sound Learnings is hosted by Acast, and if you have enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review if your podcast app allows it. Otherwise, please give us a shout on your favourite social media platform. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Bye. Bye.